Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Life Story. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Honig. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on this journey with me. What Life Story is, it's, it's really my excuse to get to hang out with a lot of my friends and mentors, find out about the highs and lows of their lives, and what led them into the people that they are today. If you're returning to my podcast, thank you so much for your continued support. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. Today, I have someone who I never had met until I had them on my show. Their assistant reached out to me saying that they were a big fan of Life Story and that this person would be an amazing guest for me to have on. So I'm very happy to welcome Dennis Torres, who, after having 64 career paths and enjoying all of the adventures that they had along the way, has written three autobiographical adventure novels about his adventures in California, driving through the Amazon, and all the different career paths and people that he has met while he worked at jobs such as the merry-go-round at the Santa Monica Pier, being a post office letter carrier, a dairy farmer, being a soldier in Vietnam, all the way to being a professor at Pepperdine University. So with that, here is the life story of Dennis Torres. Tell me your story, your life story. Dennis, so happy to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining Life Story. Yeah, my pleasure. Believe me, I'm happy to share whatever might be of interest to your listeners. Well, cool. Well, as I um, talked about in my intro that I recorded previously, um, you have had such an interesting life getting to work, 64 different career paths, getting to travel around not only the United States, but different parts of the world. So... Before we get into all that, let's talk about your early years. What was life like growing up for you as a child? Well, I grew up in a working class town of Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And the interesting thing, first of all, we felt we, we had an ideal childhood, okay? Even though um, ethnically and religiously, we were a very diverse community. Uh, and we were able to, there was no political correctness in those days, and we were able to sort of make fun of each other's uh, uh, differences, but in, in a, never with a disrespect and always with love and appreciation. Sure. We would even attend with different churches and ceremonies of, of, of our friends, giving no thought of it, spending home. So it was very, very ideal. And in our looking back, all our friends, because I'm still in touch with the people that I went through kindergarten with all these years later, uh, we marvel at, at how ideal our childhood was and how different it is from today where everybody takes offense at every little thing, okay, <laughs> which we never, we never did. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, go ahead. Where did you grow up? Perth Amway, New Jersey. Okay, very nice. So an East Coast guy. East Coast guy, and uh, Perth Amway was an industrial town, very uh, founded in the 1600s. Um, in fact, the city hall in Perth Amway, New Jersey, is the oldest government building still in continuous use in the United States. Oh. Okay. But um, we we dated, into, you know, uh, each other, and you know, a lot of my classmates had what we like to think of as unpronounceable names. Okay. <laughs> And we gave nicknames to each other, which, which today probably people would take offense at, but we never did. Uh, and we just all, maybe it was because all our families were working class, essentially, but even people who had a little bit more money than the others, it never really divided the, uh, the group. 
So we are, we feel, and I, I do Zoom calls with my friends that I went through high school with, uh, or through uh, from kindergarten through high school with, and we are, uh, we, we are all family, <clears throat> and uh, we share we share that. So very different from today's generation, um, and um, I, I think part of that. Uh, um, accounted for the fact that I felt I can freely move wherever I wanted in the world and feel at home. Yeah. And yet, in those days, trains were the big mode of transportation. And whenever I would look at the tracks of a train station, my grandparents used to come in by train mm -hmm. a couple of times a year. And I would fantasize that those tracks would lead me to anywhere in the world. So I had an incredible curiosity. And that curiosity combined with the fact that my parents told me I could always be whatever I wanted to be in the world, uh, led me to have adventures that I didn't think of as adventures, just as learning. I have an insatiable curiosity to this day. Yeah. And that's why I've had so many different jobs and experiences. Well, cool. Um, did your family um, have a lot of different jobs or were your mom and dad, did they have the same job throughout your entire growing up years? Well, that's interesting to say that. I was always a little bit embarrassed that my dad had so many different jobs, mm -hmm. but he, he actually had the same job all his life, but with different companies. He was a salesman okay, and he sold everything from encyclopedias to funeral plans uh to uh, different kind of insurances but he was always a salesman and he and i used to envy my classmates whose parents were let's say professionals or working class they either worked in the factory and had the same job and then retired from the factory as a union uh, union job with a decent retirement and or they were parents were lawyers or doctors and they and this and my friends got into the same job as their parents uh so it was always interesting to me that i had so many different jobs and experiences because that's exactly what my father did except his were all in the same field and mine were different mm -hmm. uh, for your viewers who who haven't seen my my resume or something that it, it, i had jobs that uh, uh i was a uh, commercial uh, pilot uh, I ran the merry-go-round on the Santa Monica Pier, which is a huge tourist attraction. Uh, I was an industrial engineer. Um, I was a university professor. Uh, I was a media and arbitrator of litigated cases. We had well over a thousand cases of those. Uh, I graduated the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. I was wow. in the garment industry for a while. And how that all happened is I did things that interest me. Yeah. I was a mail carrier, letter carrier. Okay, I was a dairy farmer. I was a, a, a big rig truck driver. Okay, um, things just came up, and I said, "Gee, that sounds interesting," and I and I did them. Yeah. Were you one of those little kids that was like, "I know what I want to be when I grow up," or were you someone that was always everything just sounded interesting, and you were moving from one thing to the next? The latter. Yeah. In fact, I used to envy my friends who knew what they wanted to do, okay? When I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I said, well, you know, I like cars. Maybe I want to be an auto mechanic, but I didn't have the, 
I want to say aptitude, but there's even more than that. To be a mechanic, there's a certain something in there that make you a good mechanic than not. And uh, so my mother said, look, you can be whatever you want, but you're going to college. <laughs> okay. Sure. So reluctantly, I went to college because I didn't like school anyway. And it's really funny that I became a university professor having not liked school. <laughs> I mean, hey, I was never the best student either. And now I've been working at six different universities and I'm still in my 20s. <laughs> um, where did you end up going to college? Well, the first school I went to was was a Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City, okay. which is part of the university uh, or the state's uh, University of New York. And uh, I took the um, they were they were eccentric to the, the garment industry, and I took the courses uh, for industrial engineering in the garment industry. Okay, which essentially required every new fashion requires a different layout in the factory. Okay, how you're going to move from uh, this job to that job to that job to that job to, to produce a finished garment. And part of an industrial engineer in the garment industry is figuring out the workplace layout and also uh, time and motion study of how you're going to pay if somebody's going to attach a collar to a, a uh, uh, the body of a, of a jacket or something, how much are you going to pay for that? Mm -hmm. And that was my first job. And unfortunately, when I got the, when I started working, I, my, my office was in the Empire State Building on the 76th floor. Oh, wow. And then they sent me to the factory uh, in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and then I said, you know, even if I own this company, I don't want to be stuck in a factory. Yeah, not as good as a view, I, I guess. <laughs> so I left that job and became a dairy farmer. Actually, I worked wow. with people that owned a dairy farm, and I found that incredibly fascinating. Hard okay. work, but incredibly fascinating, and the people were wonderful. What was so fascinating about it to you? Well, it was very different than I grew up in an industrial you know, town, but uh, you, know, you learned about all kinds of things, growing feed, feeding the animals, the alcohol that's produced when you do silage, uh, what they call polling, mm -hmm. you move the, the uh, horns from the cows. You know, we used to twist these little wire things which cut off the circulation into it and the horns eventually fall off. And how the cows are your partners, they're not like animals, they're more like family. So when one died, you never would eat them or when they were not producing, you'd never sell them for meat mm -hmm. because they were your partners. And how the cows knew you and you knew them and they knew which stall to get in and how to milk them, and uh, all that was just incredibly fascinating to me. Wow, that's so cool. So then after dairy farming, where did you move off to next? Well, I went back to my hometown, and, and my uh, good friend, girlfriend, good friend at the time, her godfather was a big shot in a Teamsters union. So okay. I needed a job, and he got me a job in the uh, driving a big rig, Mm -hmm. At that time, for Montgomery Ward, they had a contract with Montgomery Ward, which was like Sears. Sure. <clears throat> and um, I loved it because not only did it pay more than engineering, mm -hmm. I could pay more than lawyers, thanks to uh, Jimmy Hoffa, James <laughs> the <head laughs> <of Kingston> Union. <clears throat> uh, the um, my my uh, my mind was my own, and I didn't have. As an industrial engineer, I had work to take home at night, work to do on the weekends, okay? 
in, when you're driving a truck, uh, your mind is your own. You're just driving. Yeah. <clears throat> the Teamsters Union at that time, I, I remember the first day that I, I uh, uh, went to the job, I saw people loading the truck at the at the loading dock and i started helping him and i got the guy yelled at me what are you doing so essentially he was telling me that's a different job you don't do that you just drive it's a different uh, union job and then they told me uh listen here's what you're going to do you're going to drive the truck to this diner which is a restaurant for people who don't know that uh, and you're going to hang out there for hours and you're not going to start driving the truck until such and such a time because you're going to get time and a half, mm -hmm. okay? I don't know what the union, what the deals they had over there, but we, the drivers were making more money. Most of the drivers drove Cadillacs, which was the luxury car at the time. <clears throat> so we made good money, and um, I enjoyed that job too. In fact, frankly, it was the first time I had been around people that had sidearms. Okay. Oh, some of the union leaders had sidearms. Okay, uh, it was an interesting adventure. Yeah, what time period was that, or what year? Okay, that would be uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, that would be like 1963. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, how long were you driving rigs for then? I drove uh, for about eight months. Okay. The reason, the reason I stopped is because that was a year of um, drafting for the Vietnam War. Of course. Okay. And, uh, and I never knew anything about the military, but that didn't stop them from putting me on the drafting list. Yep. And so <laughs> I said to somebody, gee, I don't know what to do. I'm going to be drafted. They said, well, why don't you enlist instead of draft, being drafted because the Army takes anybody. You got idiots in there who didn't finish high school or whatever. At least in the Air Force, they require you to have at least a high school education. Mm -hmm. So I enlisted in the Air Force, which was a four-year commitment. And uh, I spent two and a half years in North Dakota, which was a very interesting because... Yeah, you'd been in my area. You live in North Dakota or what? Well, Iowa's next to North Dakota. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. To me, it was like being on a prairie in the 1800s, which was very interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. the customs and everything else. I, you know, I was learning a lot there. <clears throat> and I spent two and a half years in Minot, North Dakota at the uh, Minot Air Force Base, B-52s, KC-135s, and some fighter squadron. And then they sent me to Vietnam, and I spent a year in Vietnam. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, when I got back from Vietnam, uh, oh yeah, I needed a I needed a job, but I couldn't find. First of all, I only spent a year in Vietnam, which was the tour. Every every tour was only you were only committed for a year. Yeah, I got discharged after that because I had already spent before North Dakota. I had already spent uh, time in two different bases in Texas, and it was a four year commitment. So when I got back from Vietnam, my commitment was over, and. It was like I was gone for 10 years from the United States instead of one. Oh, wow. Okay, just psychically, it was uh, it was so different after the war. I didn't know what to do. And the only jobs in the want ads, in those days, you, you found jobs looking at the local newspaper. Sure. In this case, the Los Angeles Times. <clears throat> and... Uh, they were jobs for salesmen for like insurance or something. And I had to wear a suit, tie, and sell insurance. 
That was the last thing I wanted to do. It wasn't me. And so I found, looking at the travel section, because I like travel, mm-hmm. not inspiration, I found an ad that said, want to explore the Amazon. I said, hmm, that sounds interesting. That does sound interesting. Yeah. So I went down and met the person who put that in, who was a woman who claimed to be uh, the one of the few female members of the International Explorers Club. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she told me about how I can explore the, go through Mexico, Central, and South America and make money and explore the Amazon. And I said, okay. So I paid her a few dollars, uh, $25 if I remember correctly. And she put me on an index card and her job was to fix me up with somebody else who would share the cost of me driving my 1962 Volkswagen from California to the country of Panama. Okay. And then I planned on selling it in Panama and then using that money to live on and go explore the Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then when I came back, I would do some of the things she said where I can make money. Sure. And some of the, some of the things she said you can make money on were uh, uh, collecting pre-Columbian artifacts. Mm-hmm. She told you where, where graves were that you could dig up and get these pre-Columbian and sneak them back in the United States and, and sell them to collectors. Uh, some of her clients took emeralds. They went to Bogota, Colombia, mm. which I also did. And people who work in the emerald mines sneak out some emeralds, and you can buy them on the black market, bring them back to the United States and sell them. Other people were diving for gold in the rivers in the Amazon, and somebody else started a orchid farm. Oh. I wasn't really interested in making money. I was interested in the adventure, even though I was practical and needed money. Yeah. Uh, but I went along with it. And um, I had a great adventure. That actually is captured in my uh, one of my novels that I wrote after I retired from Pepperdine called The Amazon of Ray Goldberg Rivera. Yeah. Uh, so that whole adventure is in there. And the Vietnam adventure, which was an adventure in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to know what made it an adventure, I'll be happy to tell you. But that book is, that was the second book I wrote, the second novel, which is called there are no good giants mm-hmm. after a poem that was written by a world war ii soldier in, in the european theater <clears throat> um let's see where I was. did you see um some neat animals when you were in the amazon because it's uh, such a beautiful ecosystem down there i did i did and this woman who who sent me there told me one of the reasons that so many expeditions to the amazon fail mm-hmm. is because people try to take their lifestyle what they think they need to survive into the amazon yeah and she said you have to learn how to live off of the environment in the amazon if you're going to survive there which intrigued me mm-hmm. and that's what i did i i i went in the amazon with very few things a fire starter machete uh you know uh, and I, I i had to learn to live it they're eating what, what food sources were there and purifying the water through uh, earth filtration systems. Sure. And so, and it was all very interesting. I went there to, to, to learn how to connect with my, my mind and the environment, how to live in that environment. Yeah. Huh. So then how long were you down in the Amazon before you came back towards the United States? 
Well, I spent uh, several months living by myself in the jungle, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, spent a year on that trip. Okay. And How was it being by yourself in the jungle? I actually liked it. Yeah. The first couple of nights were scary, and there was a lot of discomfort. Yeah. You know, we often wonder about the animals in the Amazon as being the biggest threat or the, to security, and they, in a sense, they are, but the the most um, the most difficult thing in the Amazon is the insects. Oh they yeah, rule they rule the world and they're eating you alive. Uh huh. <laughs> Oof! I can't even imagine. I had experienced some of that in Vietnam. I don't think I had clear skin there for a long time after <laughs> I got back because the insects there eat you alive as well. Uh huh. Well, the humidity. Yes, that too. It took me a long time to get. I I I functioned well in heat. Yeah. But humidity in Vietnam took me quite a while to adjust to it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Texas or California heat is very different from Amazon or Vietnam. Yeah. Um. So, what did you do then once you left the Amazon and came back to the United States? Did you still work for that lady that started you on that, or did you end up finding something new? Well. Again, I had to get another job, okay? Um, uh, and by the way, uh, it was an adventure getting back as well. Yeah, and tell me about the, that. Yeah, the Amazon, a great broke, uh, Ray Goldberg Rivera, you know, there's a lot of adventures in there. But uh, I actually came back on a banana boat out of Esmeraldas, Ecuador, to Tampa, Florida, across through the canal and across the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, wow. And I hitchhiked back to California. <clears throat> so I had to get a job. You know, even even though that whole year I was gone, I, I spent less than a thousand dollars. Wow. Okay, yeah. But I needed work, so um, I ended up taking a job with at that time it was called Pacific Telephone Company, mm -hmm. and the job was what they call an out rep. Okay, and that means uh, at that time the Public Utilities Commission required the telephone company before they could shut off somebody uh, for non-payment, you had to tell them uh, in person mm -hmm. that if you don't pay, we're gonna have to disconnect it. So they trained me to go out in the field to, uh, to deal with them. And the, the uh, woman who trained me during the course of uh, sitting in her class, uh, and by the way, some of the things she told me is for instance, uh, I was gonna be working in the black ghetto area los angeles mm. uh, and uh, they told me well if when people see you and this was largely a welfare community sure when they see you and you're back, back, backing in the company car be careful because people will jump in behind you so they can be hit and sue the company and she also said if they if a if a customer offers you a drink take it don't refuse it call us and we'll pick you up okay mm. so this is like, I said, now I know why they hired a Vietnam vet for the job. <laughs> okay. um, but I had wonderful experiences with the people there. Absolutely wonderful experiences in that community. Uh, I immersed myself in the community. Uh, and I stayed with that job as an out rep uh, for, uh, I can't remember how many months. And then 
I moved on from there to what was the next job that I had? These are all covered in a book, I, another novel I wrote called uh, 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 Not Far From the Ocean. Sure. And I'll explain why that title came from in a moment. I'm trying to think of the next job. I became a letter carrier in, in Santa Monica. Okay, I'm sure that's a lot of walking. Yes, and I loved it because <laughs> beautiful tree-lined streets and I met the, uh, the people there. But it, the adventure also was that it was during the hippie era. Okay. And so you had in the in the annex where we all cased the mail, mm -hmm. you had old postal carriers from a different generation and the new hippie carriers who were just starting. And uh, it was a very interesting dynamic that's in the book uh, from the, the different generations. Um, and then from that job, I ended up taking a job running the merry-go-round on the Santa Monica Pier. Yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> and that was a great adventure. The people I met and uh, et cetera, there was even Hollywood actors who rented the merry-go-round to have a fundraiser yeah. for a political candidate. Who was maybe the coolest celebrity that you got to see doing that? God, I can't remember it because I'm not celebrity oriented. Sure. I, mean, I find everybody, I don't care what they are, I find them extraordinarily fascinating. Yeah. Everybody. I'm sure you never saw anyone unhappy on the Ferris wheel. I feel like that's one of the happiest places to be. Yeah, and they rented the forecourt, and I ran the merry ground because it was a fundraiser for their political candidate. Um, uh, and the fact that I was. Uh, soldier in Vietnam and I was anti-war mm -hmm. uh, helped their cause because they were anti-war sure basically leaning uh, and so one of the actors I bet there he's he's long past uh, and I'll think of his name in a moment uh, he told me and he he was a character actor so he acted in lots of films sure uh, but he he had roomed with a in New York when he was starting out with a a very famous, uh, some, an actor who became very famous, and that actor always made sure he got jobs in films. Okay. Friends, um, and he said he was looking for a roommate in Hollywood. And on a fling, I said, okay, since the rent was a lot cheaper than what I was paying in Santa Monica, I went and took him up on it, and, and his apartment, which was a two bedroom, one bath, mm -hmm. on Sunset Boulevard, and Sunset Boulevard at that time was the mecca for hippies all over the United States. Yeah. <clears throat> so that job I took, uh, I ended up becoming a writer for the number one underground newspaper in the world and also for magazines that catered to the music industry. Oh. <clears throat> uh, and I met a lot of very famous musicians because of my job as interviewing them, whatever, even though I was never big. Yeah. Into, into that genre. So, did you ever want to move back towards New Jersey or did you just fall in love with California? I fell in love with it. I came to California first when I got uh, sent to Vietnam. Yep. So, I, I drove from North Dakota to California and my parents had moved to Pasadena by that time. And so, I oh, okay. And, uh, but I had never been to California. As soon as I got to, I don't know, Arizona, I think, something in my body said, 
this is where I belong, mm -hmm. the West, okay? And uh, I never wanted to go back. I have the roots in the East Coast. I love my childhood. I love my childhood friends who I still interact with today. But uh, California was calling to me, and mm -hmm. that was my home. <clears throat> So, um, yeah, you mentioned being able to keep friendships for all those years. I have a group of about 15 of us from high school that I knew from growing up and we are still just as close. And you said that they're like your second family. Those people are my second family. I adore them just as much as I adore my mother and father. I'm with you on that. Where did you go to high school? So I went to high school in Bedendorf, Iowa, which is right on the Iowa, Illinois border. Um, okay. and lived there all 18 years before heading off to college. But it's a great place. I still have friends and family there, but um, I know that is not necessarily where I want to go back and settle down, but it is a wonderful community. And that's the way I feel, too. I'm not going to move back there. Yeah. But, uh, I had the greatest of childhood memories. We do a Zoom call once a month. With my oh, I love that. I know to a kindergarten, okay? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they are a family, and my roots are in that. Perth Amboy, and that is, in one sense, it's my hometown, but, you know, California is where I live. Yeah. Where I, where I, I, you know, I, I, so that book, with those four jobs I had, the phone company, the um, letter carrier, the merry-go-round, and the uh, writing. Yeah. Uh, is all captured in the, in the third novel that I wrote called Not Far From the Ocean. Yeah, tell me about why that title is so important. Okay. What that title was, one day when I was in the black ghetto community, and the, uh, I even dated a girl from that uh, community. Uh, I mean, I felt it as much as home with them as anything, and my curiosity wanted to learn as much as I could about about uh, them and the people. Well, I ran into, I ran in one day to two guys who were about my age in my 20s, mm -hmm. and they were strong, athletic uh, young guys, and I said, you know, what are you guys going to do in your life? What's, you know, what's your aspirations and everything? And they told me they wanted to be shoeshine boys. And there's nothing wrong with being a shoeshine. I, I'd be happy being shoeshining myself. But it, it just blew my mind that that was the highest level in their mind that, that they thought they could get. And I realized that was because the community they were in made that prison. They had never known people that had sort of gone beyond sure and and in the course of the conversation with them and with others in the community i was absolutely blown away that many of them had never seen the ocean mm. okay and yet the ocean was i don't know five six seven ten miles away 25 cents yeah. on the bus okay you think of california coast the ocean the beach yeah and their whole life was in certain few blocks from where they grew up and they had never seen the ocean. To me, that was like, you know, especially me, a, a curiosity person. With yeah. Curiosity. And that's where that title came from, because I, it, I realized that many people are living in a box, okay, of, of, of their beliefs, and they, they never see the ocean beyond that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Wow, I love that. That is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, thinking about being in Iowa and stuff, we're so far from the ocean, but being that close to it and stuff, it's like, yeah, the little things you just take for granted or don't realize how how close you are to them. Um, 
Tell me about how you met your wife. I drove to Iowa, and when I retired from Pepperdine in 2017, I drove through Iowa. Yeah. While as being an old farmer, I you know I love the rural atmosphere too, but I never realized that there are hundreds of miles of cornfield. Oh yes, sir. Not ten miles, not fifteen miles, but hundreds it seems. (laughs) Yeah. No, we have plenty of corn here, but we do have some beautiful cities and some amazing people in this state too. Um, tell me about how you met your wife. Well, I met her, uh, one of the people I met when I was a writer, <clears throat> I used to hang out a place in Malib- in uh, Los Angeles called Barney's Beanery, which was a sort of a, a roadside, a roadhouse restaurant. And uh, Barney used to let people who were writers, poor writers and actors were always looking for naked, okay, music people. Uh, he always let him hang there. You could drink a cup of coffee all day long or eat a bowl of his chili or apple mm. pie with cheese on it. And that was my, when, when I was through working for the day, I always went down to Barney's. And one night my wife and a friend of hers came in and we started talking and we talked until Barney was ready to close. And we went home together that night and we never parted and six weeks later we were married wow and we're married now 54 years congratulations when you know you know yeah i uh i always tell people it's the longest one night stand i've ever had (laughs) (laughs) um what was your honeymoon like well interesting that you should should ask that is because when we got married you know, foolishly, I had my wife quit her job. I say foolishly because she was uh, an assistant to a producer of three very, very popular TV shows. Oh, wow. My Three Sons. I don't know if you ever heard of those. Things, yeah. Okay. And uh, she worked on Wild Wild West, which is an incredible show, and uh, Family Affair. And mm-hmm. uh, so... I say foolishly because if she would have stayed with them, she would have probably been a top producer in Hollywood. Oh, but sure. Anyway, being young and foolish, we we bought a tent camper from Montgomery Wards mm-hmm. that we could tow behind my Volkswagen convertible at that time. I, that was my second VW. And we took off on a one-year honeymoon traveling around the United States and Canada, camping out while I would type out my uh, novels uh, on a little portable Olivetti that I had. <laughs> so that was our that was our uh, honeymoon, a one-year camp wow. all over the United States and Canada. That's incredible, the amount of people and things you must have seen. Yeah. Do you have a favorite memory or stop during that tour that you got to do? Well, we always loved Sequoia. Okay. Sequoia National Park. And, and why... Because, for one thing, those sequoia trees, that type of sequoia only grows in California. And the sequoias grow, I think, only in two places on Earth, China and California. Mm-hmm. And they, there's two types of sequoias, the ones that are called like coastal, and they go, they're the tallest trees in the world. And then the ones in the Sequoia National Park, uh, which I think are called siempre, sequoia siempre, which means always or something or other. Those things are like skyscrapers. They're huge. 
uh, from one tree, you can build, they say 45 single family homes just from one tree. That's how much lumber. Wow. The amazing thing to me wasn't that. It was the fact that you're in a forest, you're dwarfed by these trees, and one limb on those trees are bigger than any tree east of the Mississippi. Uh, but the amazing thing is they were mature trees at the time of Christ. Oh. Okay. Yeah. And there's something very spiritual about being surrounded by these giants that are that have been there for thousands of years. Yeah. Okay. It tells you who you are and who who you know uh, humans are and what's meaningful in life, etc. So that was a favorite. Wow. That's cool. Um, did you always love writing when you were younger? Because now you've written books, you had some jobs writing magazines. I'm a big writer myself. In high school, I wrote a three-season, 44-episode-long TV show. Um, so you're talking about the TV industry. That That's my bread and butter. I always have loved television. Oh, good. And it's nice and interesting, again, that you say this. This is quite a connection we have here. The interesting thing is when I met my wife, uh, she was, as I say, an assistant to a producer mm -hmm. of shows. Ed, Ed Hartman was the producer. And uh, because of her connection, he offered me a, a job writing. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, like, this is something people would die for. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the connection. So I wrote an episode. I think it was for my three sons. I'm trying to remember which show it was because we're married 54 years. A lot has happened. Um, and I, I said, you know, there's sort of a formula to those, and that's not that's not what I was feeling as a writer. Sure. Okay. Uh, so foolishly, again, I said, you know, thanks, but no thanks, because uh, I could have been making making good money for that. Uh, and it was the same when I was writing for the magazines. I think my success was due. Or whatever success it was, because they don't pay writers a lot. In fact, no. when I came back to L.A., I always like to write to answer your question. So I went to the L.A. Times, and I said, I want to become a, a reporter. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you just can't walk in and say you want to be a reporter. <laughs> and then the guy asked me, how much money, what's your background? I said, well, I was an industrial engineer. I was this, and they said, how much, you, how much did you make? And I remember I told him how much I made. He said, that's more than my boss makes. <laughs> they can pay writers very much money. Yeah. So they weren't going to hire me anyway, but, you know, there was no money in it. Um, and that's not why you write, at least not why I write. If I, no, if I want you write because you love. In TV. But uh, <clears throat> the when I was writing about the musicians and I wrote about the, the Doors, they were extraordinarily big at the time, mm -hmm. the who and uh, God, I'm trying to think of all those names that, uh, that, that were big back in the 60s. Um, most of the writers would write about what their next album was about and how many Bentleys they had or something or other. I wanted to write about them, what, what kind of people, what was, what was driving them, what were they were thinking about, what the, they did. And so I got into a very more personal level of them as a human being rather than as a rock star. Uh huh. And I didn't care that they were rock stars. It, it didn't impress me at all. Sure. Okay? 
<clears throat> we're all human beings at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think I've only bought two records or three records in my life, mostly as gifts. Mm -hmm. And people think I don't like music. It's not that I don't like music. I can enjoy it. But it's not my life. Yeah. I'm not throwing my, my uh, self at the heels of these people. Uh, I'm much more interested in them as, as people. And because of that, I had great access because they were so used to people, oh, you know, kiss my ring type. Uh-huh. And, and they could see I could care less about that. And to me, they were just people. And it gave me great access to their parties and their homes and their, their comings and doing to, uh, what do you call recording studios. Mm -hmm. uh, I got in, I had tickets to uh, their concerts and I, I uh, maybe went once Okay, just to, for the experience. Sure. Uh, um, but I found the uh, interest in the struggles they were having with fame and fortune. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I don't know how I go off on that tangent, uh, but, uh, and that's all covered in my book, too, Not Far From the Ocean. Yeah. Uh, um, which uh, gets into the non-celebrity lives of these of these musicians because i write them i write them as novels so i don't get sued and so that nobody gets insulted yep fair <laughs> yeah. it's a good mindset to have no one wants to get sued yeah <laughs> um tell me about how you got into the world of being a professor okay um well as i told you geez you know Tyler, it's almost like we rehearsed this, which we didn't. We did not. I never rehearsed my podcast. We've never met. Yeah. Uh, what what happened when I when I uh, got married and we got back to Mo uh, to LA? Um, well, let's see. I had several jobs in between, but when we we moved to Malibu, mm -hmm. I. Um, Oh, that's, I'm trying to remember now. We, my wife and I started, I was in the aviation too. Mm -hmm. uh, part I left off is when I worked for the phone company, the woman who trained me, she, during the period of training, she told me she was the pilot during the war, World War II, for this organization head, headed by Jackie Cochran, of women who flew fighter and bomber aircraft from the manufacturers to the air bases because the pilots were busy flying in the war. So these women flew, women flew from the factories to the air bases. And she looked like a librarian to me. Uh -huh. she, told me she told me she flew a, B, a P-51 Mustang, <laughs> which was the equivalent of our greatest fighter jets now. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at her and imagining that blew my mind. So that weekend when I wasn't working, I went down to the local airport and I, I signed up for flying lessons. I didn't have any money, but they had a deal with the local bank where they owned you the money. Okay, so I took, I went in debt. I became a, I got my, my private pilot license. And then I went on, I got my commercial pilot's license and my flight instructor license and my instrument rating and my multi-engine rating. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I got into aviation. So, uh, I was trying to make the connection to us. Oh, professor. Yeah, so my wife and I, I felt kind of guilty. Uh, I was flying an airplane at the time that I owned uh, a Cessna 402K 
cabin class twin engine airplane mm -hmm. and I climb out it burned about 45 gallons an hour so I felt very guilty of course you're going to 200 miles at 200 and some miles an hour but still I said you know we're burning up all these fossil fuels that are limited and for what so let's do something that uh, is there a way that we can provide some service so we we're not doing this for selfish reasons and my wife and i founded an organization called angel flight okay and angel flight uh, uh, flies people who have medical needs for free so the pilots donate the cost of the flight and their time to fly people from that need medical treatment from yeah. one place to another that's incredible uh, we started that in 1983 and um in fact just what is today today's thursday just monday we celebrated the 100,000th flight wow congratulations thank you and i i flew the so we took a picture of me who flew the first flight yeah the guy uh who flew the 100,000th and there was a lot of publicity of course in that but uh uh, so, um, now I see where we're going with this. So, uh, oh, during the, uh, when I started up Angel Flight, um, we didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. so I, I went and spoke at the local Rotary Club in Malibu to tell them about, I was guest speaker then about uh, Angel Flight. And one of the Rotarians was a executive vice president of Pepperdine. <clears throat> And so he said, you know, we could use your, your talents at Pepperdine. And uh, I said, as long as I can do some other things, uh, I'll be interested in doing it. So they hired me, well, they hired me as assistant treasurer, which was funny because that's not my field. Uh, but I was the head of real estate. Okay. And I developed the real estate department from one person, me, yeah. Uh, to uh, ultimately to 19 people. Oh, wow. Big jump. Yeah, because I <clears throat> I brought in a lot of real estate gifts to the university. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when you bring in money, people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and so the department grew and, and ultimately we separated into a plan giving department and the real estate department. And um, it was a very enjoyable and successful uh, career and while i was there i also found out that our in our law school the strauss institute for dispute resolution which was attached to our law school i had gone to law school as well uh -huh. curiosities uh and the strauss was rated as number one not only the number one program at pepperdine that had a number one rating but also number one uh, in the country Wow! Uh, in dispute resolution, so I said, "Geez, I ought to, I ought to uh, go there." So I did, and I got a master's degree in dispute resolution, and I started teaching uh, at the full in the full time MBA program, um, negotiation and resolution of business disputes, and then uh, from that I taught a believe it or not a global finance uh, course, where I took the students every year to Washington to to New York, to Goldman Sachs, and to Deutsche Bank, and to uh, uh, Blackstone, and all this stuff. And 
And then from there, we went to Washington, D.C. and went to uh, um, the World Bank and the uh, IMF and uh, the, uh, the um, Chamber of Com International Chamber of Commerce. <clears throat> and then I developed a course. They, they asked me, the faculty said, we don't have a course in ethics. Yeah. We developed a course in ethics. Uh, so I said, okay. And before I developed it, I, I wrote to professors across the country who taught ethics and said, mm -hmm. what's your syllabus like and uh, what books do you use? And uh, I didn't really care for it. They were very generous. That yeah. I liked. And for some reasons, uh, because they sold the books that they wrote. But, but they were Oh, yeah, they generous. always want to have you buy the books that they write. <laughs> That's right. But it didn't resonate with me. And I did some research online, and it said by the time my research showed by the time a student reaches graduate school level, they already know right from wrong in, in an ethics-centric uh, background, mm -hmm. and, and just pr propounding it is a waste of time. <clears throat> and one thing I don't like to do is waste my time or their time. Nope. So I decided I would write a new course altogether. Mm -hmm. And instead of, even though Pepperdine is a Christian-centric school, mm -hmm. um, I decided what I would do is make the ethics uh, more like physics, that with each decision you make, there's a consequence. Mm -hmm. And you pick your experience. When you pick your, your decision, you pick the experience. Just like in physics, for every action, there's a certain reaction. Yep. Okay. And instead of saying, this is right, and you better not uh, you know, do wrong, okay, it's rather look at it and say, if you do this, you're buying into the consequences well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I developed it into how they, how they can create wealth, <clears throat> because I told the students, those of you in this class are probably, on a global basis, in the top 1% of the people in the world economically sure and yet you're not satisfied what's wrong with that yeah okay what's wrong with that okay uh and even if not the top one percent maybe even the top five percent in this country what's wrong with that I, i'm in, at the top and i'm unhappy i want mm -hmm. more okay how are you going to find joy and happiness in life with that kind of a uh, of a guide <clears throat> so i i wrote a course and the way it works at the university is if you start a new course, they don't put it in a catalog until you have a couple of years of teaching it and they see how the students yeah. like it and how they sign up for it. Yeah. Well, uh, if I called it ethics, I figured nobody's going to sign up. <laughs> so I had to come up with a title that I thought that they would. And I came up with a title called Acquiring Wealth, Power, Success, morally and ethically. I'd be interested in it. <laughs> so it was a huge success, probably the most successful program in the course. By the second year, it was in the catalog. And the students, of course, told everybody they have to come there. And uh, that, that actually is the fourth book I wrote. Mm -hmm. called, we called the course AWP, SME, for short. Okay. Success, morally and ethically. And so I wrote a novel, again, for the same reasons I write my experiences as novels. 
uh, called The Course. Mm -hmm. And that book is also uh, out there now and is doing tremendously. It made number one uh, on Amazon, number one uh, bestseller on Amazon. Wow. Of course. <clears throat> um, and, I, and I get these wonderful texts and emails from former students uh, how they paid off all their debt and mm -hmm. uh, they made all this money just following what I had in the course. And that's what makes it all worth it is when you have the students reach back out and say, thank you, you really taught me something. Yeah, and I love it. I have students all over the world, of different uh, France, Saudi Arabia, uh, Lebanon, uh, Morocco, uh, Thailand, okay? And they've used what they learned in the course, uh, not only to make money, which they have, mm -hmm. made off their debt, you know, for instance, they used to say to me, well, Professor, it's easy for you to talk, but I got X number of dollars in student debt. And I say, that's nothing. Every day you're spending $5 in change or $6 in change on a Starbucks. By the way, you get free coffee here at the school. <laughs> uh, that, if you, if you gave that up alone, it would pay off your student debt. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, it's always putting it in perspective. And they never think of that. They spend money on things that they just never think about. Yeah. And when I, when when they started thinking about it, uh, and there was a lot more in there. We even had professors come in from other schools that taught mediation, uh, okay. meditation, meditation. Okay. So they keep keep their focus on what's really important in life. Yeah. I had a high school teacher my senior year that always let us meditate for the first five minutes of class because he's like, wow. you may never for the rest of your life get a moment where someone says, take five minutes for yourself. He goes, when you were in my class, though, you will always get that time for yourself. Yeah, and, and that is amazing. Yeah, he was one of the wisest people. men that I ever knew. Yeah, and that's what we did in class, too. In fact, I, I would teach, I start off with mantra. Okay. You know mantra. How oh, yeah. So I, I would tell the students of curiosity, I said, what if you came to me and said, you know, Professor, I got a headache. And I, and I said, what would you think if I said, I can cure your headache there in, in one second. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they said, of course, now you get their curiosity. Yeah. I said, okay, let's say you came there and here's how I would do. If I stomped on your foot as hard as I can, what do you think would happen with your headache? I said, <laughs> well, of course, I would think about my foot now, not the head. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's what the mantra is. The mind can only concentrate on one thing at a time the most dominant, okay? And if you learn to use a mantra, when you have thoughts that are not going to be productive for you and everything, you could use the mantra there to displace that thought yep. going at, you know, and get that level of control. <clears throat> so that's all in that book, again, yeah. of course. That's cool. So as we're coming to a close with this episode, um, I do have one final question I ask all of my guests. But before I do that, I like to give a little synopsis of what we talked about. So growing up in New Jersey, having so many different jobs between uh, running Ferris wheels, going to the Amazon, um, working in the world of law, being a professor, meeting your wife, going on a year-long tour around the United States and Canada – when you think of one theme that you would like my listeners to get from your life, what is that theme you hope they get from this episode? Well, I, I would say 
You cannot control what comes into your life, but you can control how you respond to it. Yeah. No, that is very true. We have so little power in how everybody else views us, how we are viewed in the world. But you know what? What you do every day, that is what you put out into the world. If you put out positivity, most times out of 10, positivity will come back to you. You're absolutely right. I have friends all over the world. We have different religions, different thoughts on politics and everything else. But I have no different feeling from them than the people that think similarly to me. Okay? Yeah. I, I respond, you know, in, in the Indian tradition, they have that saying, namaste, and one of the, one of the or namaste, whichever way you want to pronounce it. The, uh -huh. the, 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 the uh, explanation of what that means is that, that God in me, that center in me, that is the same in you, sees that and respects that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's all we want in this world is to be respected and to be treated as equals as much as the next guy next to us. I learn from everybody regardless of, of, of what is. And not only learn, I'm, I'm amazed and enthusiastic and love to, to learn from their perspective. Yeah. That's the whole reason I do this podcast is I want to get to know new people and hear their life experiences and how it can better me better my listeners and create new connections like you and I. We just met today and now you're a new connection in my life. And you as well. So when you come to California, you're going to give me a call and we're going to have coffee or dinner. I will. I'm actually coming in August. So I will definitely that. keep that in mind. Okay. And, uh, and I'm sure we know somebody in the University uh, of Iowa where you are that uh, somebody in common because I do know the member of ARIO in the university yeah. Because we meet in person every, well, we did, I'm retired now. We meet in person every year at another member's uh, um, university. Okay, that's very cool. So yeah, I'm sure we do know many, many people and we just don't even realize it yet. Yeah. But Dennis, thank you so very much for taking time out of your day to be a part of this. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the meeting you as well. I feel we made an instant connection. The way you were asking me questions, it was like, wow, okay, uh, how did you come up with that question? Uh, uh, really, really uh, hit, hit on an area that I would speak to. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that's, I love people. And so you are a very easy person to have a conversation with. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Let me know when you're going to uh, make this live and, and I'll, uh, I'll put it on my uh, uh, author page. Yes, please do. I definitely will. Uh, anytime you can share uh, my story with your listeners, please do. Because um, I love to be able to share not only you, but the important other people in my life that I've gotten to interview on this show. Okay. I look forward to seeing you, Tyler, when you come out here. Yes, sir. Be, be prepared. <laughs> All right, Dennis, it was a absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. And with that, that is another episode of Life Story. If you enjoyed it, please give a like and subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, I'm Tyler Honig. Make it a great day.